In the modern age, we are surrounded and bombarded by conspiracy theories. Some of them are ridiculous sounding, but true. Some of them are ridiculous sounding and lies. How are we supposed to navigate through this weird information ecosystem? On this episode, we'll be looking at some tips and hints to do just that. This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today in the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi, Nathan. Hi, everyone. What a time it is. <laughs> I'm going to open up with a story. So we do a lot of research, but we're not just stuffy academics. We're out there in these streets doing some field work and things like that and interviews and we go on trips and we're just, we're, we're, we're getting it done out here. Sometimes I go grocery shopping and... Going to the gym occasionally. Sure. You're not as relevant, but <laughs> but good flex. I, I don't know if I've brought this up before, but amongst my QAnon contacts, there was a disturbing trend where a lot of them were starting to drink borax. Right, which is a kind of bleach. Yeah, it's a cleaning agent, which is terrible for you. And I was quite concerned. Normally when we do field work, we're just there as observers. We're trying to, we're, we're not out there trying to fight people. We're there to try to gather information. But sometimes you're in a situation where you think, I have a moral obligation to not stand by and allow this to happen. Yeah, don't drink bleach, right? Yeah, don't drink bleach. If somebody's going to hurt someone else or hurt themselves, then all of a sudden you can't maintain that, that strictly observer status. And so I was trying to argue with this one guy in particular, don't drink bleach. Mm-hmm. And unsuccessfully. For yeah, I was going to say, how'd that go? Not, not well, as you would expect, because belief systems have ways of protecting themselves. Now, as I feared, the last I've heard is that he's suffering from some serious kidney problems. Oh, no. Now, he believes that the kidney problems have been caused from other people's vaccines leaking into his body. Which is why he was drinking bleach to begin with. Which is why he was drinking bleach to begin with. He's been drinking bleach and borax and now has suffered these kidney problems. And it's very frustrating. And it also, I mean, it sort of encapsulates our situation right now. We're having a pretty weird time. Here, here's the thing. I think you would agree. We are in a situation that is filled with cover-ups and lies and manipulation. Mm -hmm. This is part of the reason why people are into conspiracy theories, because they see the conspiracy theories as a way of cutting through that. Yeah. Of, of cutting through those lies and the cover-ups. But of course, as you and I know, and I'm sure the listeners know at this point, some of those lies are the conspiracy theories. Yep. There are conspiracy theories which are lies, which are manipulation. And so we find ourselves in a situation where we're out here surrounded by information, just swimming in an ocean of it where we used to be standing in a desert of it. But there's always the possibility that we end up drowning in it. How do we know what's real and what isn't? Yeah. I mean, that's really what we've been trying to figure out with this podcast, starting from the very first episode up until now. We've constantly posed these questions about how do we know whether this really happened or this reflects some deep reality out there or whether this is one of those manipulations or a mistake or something besides that. And it's not been that easy. In fact, I've been often surprised 
in the journey that you and I have taken together about how I've changed my mind about a bunch of things, which I thought I was, I was pretty confident I knew about. Yeah. I mean, for me, one example comes from a recent episode. Actually, one of my favorite episodes I think we've ever done. Oh, yeah? Which is that? Cattle mutilation. Okay. I had done so much research on that. I had poured over like old newspapers and, and journal articles and watched bizarre old documentaries. And I had come to a conclusion that I was very comfortable with, which was... It's not the actual catamutilations which were the thing. It was the fear of them that was the thing. That was okay. the phenomenon. Yeah. And that actually cows die and then predators scavenge them and they scavenge them in very efficient and weird ways. And there were all these social phenomenon going on at the time. There was a fear of the Satanist movement because of the Manson family. There was a fear of the CIA because of all of the nonsense the CIA had just been busted right. for. Right. And so it was this very pleasant kind of episode where it's like, oh, here's the thing that didn't happen. The phenomenon of people believing in it can tell us something about history and society and politics. Yeah. And then, of course, at the end, I was like, oh, right, but actually... Your mind was blown. You blew <laughs> yeah. my mind. I think everybody who listened to that was quite surprised at how that episode took a turn. Yeah, and spoiler alert, the CIA actually had been mutilating animals in a bizarre attempt to try to test their psychics. And it, and it's and my, my whole world, as often, as, as often happens to my whole world... It went from making a little bit of sense to just being like, nope, no sense again. No, no sense. This does put us in a really difficult situation. If you and I are struggling with figuring things out, and this is essentially our job, and also a lot of what we do in our free time, I mean, that distinction between my job and the things that I do for fun is really quite... It's getting very blurry. It really is blurry. And so we spend a lot of time. The point is we spend a lot of time doing this. And we struggle. And, and not only do we do this in class, which is pretty luxurious because we have all sorts of time to prepare. Yeah. We've got the podcast, which is also pretty luxurious. We yeah. spent, like we do two a month. Yeah. And so in any given month, I'm working on two different podcasts at the same time. And I spend anywhere from two months to a year researching them. Yeah. But then we also go on the radio. Yeah. Or we go on TV. And then sometimes we have a half an hour or 45 minutes to prepare. Yeah, or six hours, which if, if, they, if I get that much, I will use it for my six-minute little radio slot. Yeah, there is this question of, okay, so then how do we work our way through it? Because even though we study this, we can get thrown off like everybody gets thrown off. Sure. You had a really interesting experience for you, I think. Your version of the cattle mutilation was, I think, Bigfoot. That's right, which is going back quite a ways. For me, what happened in that episode was... I didn't really change my mind about how I felt about Bigfoot, which you is... You started off thinking... I started off thinking that Bigfoot was not real, and I ended the episode thinking Bigfoot is not real. But what changed were my reasons, and what I discovered were the reasons I had before I did the research didn't really hold up to scrutiny. And when I examined the research, I realized that I was basically prejudiced. I had come in with a set of unexamined assumptions and thought that that was knowledge and that would guide me to the truth. And what I discovered was there had been a Bigfoot in the historical record. So this notion that, well, it's just it's just nonsense, this couldn't even be, is, is simply not true. There was a upright giant ape 
in China, I think now I don't have my notes in front of me. So I think it's about 3 million years ago. Yeah. We have I the mean, fossil it's been record. A while. It's been a while, but we do have records for it. Like it really did exist. Yeah. There are serious researchers taking the question relatively seriously. There is a researcher, I think it's at Iowa or Arizona State University, Jane Goodall, the very famous primate researcher, said if, if this turned out to be a thing, she wouldn't be super surprised by it. Now, she didn't come out and say, yeah, I totally think that there's a North American upright giant ape, but... She was just willing to entertain the idea. Yeah. And those researchers who took the question more seriously were looking at things like, well, if it's a, an herbivore or an omnivore, it would need this many calories and it would need this kind of grazing ground and these are the kinds of tracks or scat that you would be looking for and this is the nature of the evidence. So what I discovered was a lot about myself and about my preconceived notions about what was true and what wasn't. I think the other things that I found really interesting in that episode were the other creatures of legend which then turned out to be actual things and I think... Giant squids for one. Giant squids, the coelacanth. Coelacanth, yep. I think the panda was also something that started out as kind of a legend before it was quote unquote discovered by naturalists who were like, no, no, turns out this is actually a thing. There's one over there. Yeah. So that was for me a real eye opener in terms of the difference between having an opinion that's actually based in research. And just having an opinion that happens to accidentally be right. <laughs> yeah, when I was a little kid at university, I had a philosophy professor who told us that she didn't think animals felt pain. Right. I thought okay. that is a ridiculous position. It's obviously untrue. Yes. I still think that. Yes. But then I realized that I was, I was thinking it because it, it, it offended me. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, I didn't want to think it. I didn't like it. Yeah. It was an emotional reaction. Yeah. And so then I spent a few weeks researching it and, and looking into it and looking at expert evidence for it and biology and, and people who knew a lot more than me about these things. And I ended up with the conclusion that animals feel pain. Sure they do. Yeah. But the difference between that initial reaction I had and then my, what I eventually settled on, even though I didn't change my mind, I still think animals feel pain and we shouldn't hurt them. At first, it was just a reaction because it was like a visceral one. Right. And so she kind of did me a favor, and I don't know if she did that on purpose. If so, that was good professing. But my initial reaction wasn't based on anything other than how I felt. Yeah. Same with you and Sasquatch. Exactly. You didn't, you didn't change your mind, but you changed the way your mind was looking at it. Exactly. And I think that's happened with a bunch of the things that we've looked at. This brings us nicely to a listener letter which I'm going to read a large chunk of. And uh, before you do, I just want to say, I want to shout out to the listeners who are listening right now. Yes. Hello. Hi. Hello, listeners. Uh, we get great emails. We get great emails, and it's nice to interact with people on Instagram. Uh, our email address is... Podcast at theuncoverup.com. Correct. And our Instagram handle is at theuncoverup. And I just think our listeners are the best. Yeah. It sounds like we're kissing up, but no, they, they legit are. They're awesome people, one of whom sent us a really interesting question. This is from DW. DW, longtime listener. And I'm going to read 
the first part of the email in full. I'm not going to read the whole thing. He does a really good job of setting up the problem he would like us to discuss. And I think after a hundred something episodes, we've only done this once or twice where we've taken a step back and looked at what is it that we do and how is it that we do it instead of just kind of going ahead and, and looking at various conspiracies. Right. This is how sausage is made. Yeah. And who doesn't love watching sausage? <laughs> I'm going to read the email. Gentlemen, really enjoyed the recent episode on Nazi superweapons. I never suspected that they really had anything cool for the simple reason Lee mentioned they lost the war. And it's hard to imagine what they would be saving the good stuff for, if not that. But that's a high-level general response. I might not have had much to say beyond that to anyone who confronted me with actual, legit evidence about the things that they were really working on. Because of that, I found it really fascinating to go through the details on what these various projects really amounted to. And here, I think we get to the real meat of the email and the question. That got me thinking, though. We are rarely in a position of having a plain obsessive on hand when someone tells us about an alleged super bomber, or an immunologist around when we hear vaccine conspiracies. And we seldom have the time, even when we have the ability, to do the research in these fields that could give us the confidence that we're dismissing the right things. That's a problem, since as you keep pointing out, some of the conspiracies are true. By my count, about every nine or ten episodes you get one of those, and they seem as outlandish as the sun laser. Having done this for so long now, do you have a set of indicators, or red flags, that make you more immediately suspicious of some types of claims than others? Flags that might occasionally lead you to the wrong conclusion, sure, if you let them replace the need for research but which can at least do a good job of setting your priorities appropriately. The kinds of things I'm thinking about might include... And here I'm just going to give the main ideas that he's suggesting. So, for example, recurring narratives, secrets that involve more than 50 people, the supernatural. Okay, I think that's a really good question. I won't continue on with the email in which he basically says that Lee is mostly right and Nathan is kind of dead weight on the episode. Let me see that. <laughs> yeah, okay, he doesn't say that. But that is the gist of it. And I think it's a really good question. I mean, I think that he sets up the problem that you and I just articulated leading into this episode that even as people who do this research professionally and on a daily basis, we are sometimes confused. And it really is hard to know how to deal with all this information that we're getting, much of which is not very high quality, and to sift between the different types of information, different types of claims, especially when we don't have the time to do it. So as I understand him, what we're looking for here is kind of a cheat sheet. Not one that, as he says, not one that replaces the need for research, but is there a kind of a cheat sheet or is there are there certain indicators that we might use that function maybe as warning bells to say, uh-oh, be careful here, there's something suspicious or there's something going wrong. 
I have a list, and I'm sure you do too. I do. Before we get to them, let's look at the ones he mentioned, which I think highlight both the usefulness of this idea and also the limitations of this idea. Okay. Because the three he chose, one was recurring recurring narratives. narratives. And the example he gave was cannibalism. Drinking the blood of children. Which, as he points out, and which we talked about when we did episodes on witch hunts, this is an old-fashioned idea that goes back thousands of years. It keeps getting dredged up again and again and again. And so his argument here is, you know, if you see something like that, you can say, oh, we've heard this one before. It's been false in the past. It's probably false now. Uh, A modern version is that photograph that we've talked about before of somebody standing beside a bunch of coffins. Right. When I see that photograph, I already know that the story is probably not going to be true because I've seen that photograph associated with so many different conspiracies, none of which panned out. For me, the same idea using a different example, what I found really compelling was when we did the vaccine episodes and we discovered that a lot of the anxieties and claims about the COVID vaccine had been part of vaccine hesitancy or vaccine rejection going back over a hundred years. So you could go back to Leicester, England in 1880. They were bringing up some of the main ideas that are repeated today in every subsequent vaccine drive, the same, some of the same worries emerged. And then more recently, there was the connection between 3G and swine flu, Mm -hmm. 4G and bird flu, and 5G and COVID. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my students heard the 5G COVID conspiracy first, didn't know about the history of these other claims. And for me, I was already more suspicious because I had heard these already in various guises before. Yeah. Uh, The other example he gave was a conspiracy that involves more than 50 people. Yes. Because again, we are bad at keeping secrets. And the more of us there are, the harder it is to keep secrets. There's been some academic work done in this area trying to figure out the exact ratio of the amount of people who were in a conspiracy versus how quickly it gets blown. Yeah. And the third one was... The third one was just... Anything a, supernatural. Anything supernatural. Yeah. Going back, if, I, if you don't mind, going back to secrets of more than 50 people, I think a good example of this is the claims you would need to buy into if the school shootings in the United States were actually falsified and were engaged in by what are called crisis actors, or the theory suggests they're crisis actors. So there is a conspiracy that argues that the school shootings don't really happen. Right, that Sandy Hook was uh, a planned event. And that not planned in the sense that a gunman went in and did it, but but, but orchestrated. staged yeah. by people, maybe say the Democratic Party, who is against American civilians holding guns and they want to tighten up this gun legislation. So you, you, you put on this elaborate play where a bunch of children get gunned down, which makes people unhappy, which makes them more likely then to go for gun legislation. And the theory, the conspiracy theory here is that this is actually entirely staged and the people in it are crisis actors. Now, if you were to believe that, then this gets you into a little bit of trouble. Well, it gets you into a lot of trouble in terms of maintaining this theory because then you would also need to believe that the people who know those people, friends, family, would also have to be in on it. Because of course, if I were to see Nathan on TV one day suddenly pretending to be the parent of gunned down children, I would, you know, call the newspaper and say, this isn't real. He doesn't, he isn't the parent of gunned down children. 
Yeah, I mean, the amount of people that would have to be in on that, the Sandy Hook one, all of the teachers, all of the students, all of the parents, all of the cops, all of the ambulance drivers, all of the hospital workers. All of the town. All of the town. You'd have to have an entire fake town. And then all the people who know those people. And you would have to have set up that fake town decades earlier. It, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's, it's, and also offensive, too. Oh, that, that, that's certainly the case. It's very yeah. offensive. And it's, I think, one of the reasons we haven't even done an, an actual yeah, episode. I'm just, I get too angry about it. So horrendous. There's one poor father whose child was killed in Sandy Hook. And then he spent the rest of his life trying to redeem the memory of his child from from internet trolls who are calling him uh, a shill and, and told him his kid never existed and exactly and it's just so devastating and of course it's important to note that our dislike of this theory the fact that we're offended by this theory has no role at all in determining whether this theory is accurate the reason that we don't believe the theory isn't because we hate it isn't because we're offended by it it's because the evidence that supports it is so flimsy and weak and the evidence against it is so strong so yeah. i think though there is a good example of what the listener was writing about where okay look if you need to believe that there are just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people willing to be in on this conspiracy not a single person is going to be a whistleblower it makes it a lot less plausible yeah and the third one was supernatural we could look at something like the witch hunts where we had, we figured around 60,000 human beings were killed for being witches, and none of them were witches. Right. Well... None of them were witches with magical powers. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the, that's the complication in that, is that some of them would have identif- self-identified as witches. Certainly sure. not the people in Salem, but there were people who, who were part of various agrarian cults that sort of existed at the time, of Christianity, but were in the Middle Ages, but undermined it in some ways. So so there are three, I think DW has given us three kind of good red flags. When we encounter one of those in a new conspiracy, we can say, wait a second, these are the kind of things that make a conspiracy less likely to be accurate. Doesn't make them untrue. This is correct. But it makes them less likely to be accurate. But the problem with all three of these is we can think of counterexamples of actual conspiracies. If we start with the recurring narrative recurring narrative i mean how many of ours have been cold war based and the recurring narrative has been the american government thought the soviet government was doing this and so they did this ridiculous thing psychics or weird space lasers or whatever it takes so recurring narratives do sometimes recur i think i have another example where i think a trope in conspiratorial thinking is the government is after me and the government is, you know, listening to my phone calls or testing things on me or manipulating the information I'm getting. Now, in many of those instances, you're probably dealing with a mental health crisis. You're dealing with excessive paranoia and that is probably a symptom of something else. And clearly I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not even going to go there. But we have also encountered times when that actually really did happen. The government really was doing those things. Really were testing drugs on unsuspecting civilians. They really were listening to phone calls. They were really were engaging in disinformation campaigns to sabotage people's relationships, 
sabotage their position in the community. Try to get people to take their own lives. Like, these things have happened. Entire cities like San Francisco being experimented on. Right. So, yeah, that's the thing. When we move to the more people who know, the harder it is to keep secret. The Church of Scientology tried to take over the American government and got pretty far in Operation Snow White. Right. And that was well over 50 people. Yeah. And I think a good counterexample here is also a lot of legitimate spy stuff that happens. I mean, I think, for example, but how many people would have been involved in code-breaking the Nazi Enigma machine? It's going to be more... ultra top secret. That was ultra top secret. That would have been more than 50 people. Mm-hmm. You had... From top scientists to a lot of uh, clerks to the people who were overseeing Number the crunchers and t- technicians and engineers. And, and, and the people also who worked in the facilities who weren't working on code breaking. And that stayed mum. Nobody spilled the beans. And I think... And MKUltra stayed secret for decades. Yeah. And I think we have actually some problem now with with this idea because... There's also a, what is it, a verification bias or, or a survivor bias in the sense where all of the secret projects that stayed secret, we don't, we don't know, know about because they stayed secret and they could also have involved many more people than 50 people. Ah, uh, survivor bias. Let me talk briefly about survivor bias. Okay. All right. Now, in order to do this, I'm going to have to uh, do something I don't normally do. And I'm going to have to talk about airplanes for a second. Oh, no, we put an end to that in the last episode. I gave you like six episodes for airplanes. Well, it's going to be the... seven because here we go. Oh, World War II, the Americans and the British are sending over wave after wave of heavy bombers. Costs a lot of money to try to destroy Germany. And it's very expensive in material and also in personnel because a lot of these heavy heavy bombers are getting shot down and crashing. So they think... We need to figure out how to make these bombers harder to shoot down. What they do is they look at all the bombers who have gotten back to base and where they get shot. And it isn't where they thought they would be getting shot. They're not shot in the engines. They're not getting shot in the cockpit where the pilots are. They're getting shot in like the tips of the wings and kind of the middle of the plane. Okay. And they think, okay, well, this is where the planes are getting shot. This is where we should put more armor to protect the planes because clearly it's where they're getting shot. Okay. Can you see the problem with this idea? Why weren't airplanes getting shot in the engines and in the pilot? The truth is, their bombers were getting hit all over the place. Okay. But what happened to the bombers that got hit in the engine or in the pilot? They crashed. They crashed. They crashed and didn't make it back. There you go. And so when they looked at these bombers and said, hey, they're only getting shot in the tips of the wings and in the middle, it's like, no, they weren't. Those are the ones that survived. And that's survivor bias. If we're only measuring... Of all the places you need to armor... Those are not the places that exactly. you Exactly. They put should have done the opposite. And they should have said, where are none of our surviving planes being hit? Clearly, the planes who were hit there didn't make it back. That's okay. survivor bias. So Airplanes. we have some survivor bias potentially in trying to answer this question because, I mean, again, DW has a point. If you wanted to, the claim that the moon landing is fake would require... All, tens of thousands tens of, of thousands of people if you think of all the people who work at Cape Canaveral who worked on the Apollo project who knew the astronauts themselves who did the training etc etc it would be unwieldy but i think there are examples of times when a lot of people keep their mouth shut yeah i mean the illuminati for a few years was spreading through europe 
and then they got caught and busted. But for a few years there, they were actually being pretty successful yep. until they got to about 3,000. Yep. And then, obviously, the Bavarian government steps in. That's a whole other thing. The third one was supernatural. Supernatural. And again, I agree. When I encounter a supernatural conspiracy, I'm like, hmm, already, if it's got ghosts in it, I got problems. But we have to be more specific because are there true conspiracies about the supernatural? There are. In fact, we go right back to our very first episode on Stargate. Six years ago. Six years ago. We were young. More than 100 episodes ago when the when we discovered, quite to my surprise, I have to admit, that the American government was investigating very seriously whether they could weaponize psychic ability. And so... That's actually where that cattle mutilation example came from that you started the show with. It yeah, a was a subproject of Sunstreak, which came from Stargate. Which came from Stargate, which was this project to see if you could weaponize psychics. Yeah. And so that is a conspiracy that really happened. And it, it cost a lot of money. It was a secret project, which cost a lot of money. It, of course, produced no results. But... It was... But it was real. Uh, yeah, and I think you make an interesting point here to distinguish between the claims of the conspiracy and what the conspiracy is about, if that's a helpful way of making that distinction. Sort of, is psychic ability real is different from were there people who believed that psychic ability was real and then spent a whole bunch of public money to investigate it. Yeah, exactly. So ultimately, I would say that all three of those that DW has provided us, I'd say, yeah, they're very reasonable and we use those as well. But again, it's this very, as a person who spent all those years teaching logic at university, I, 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 I fall back into those ways. Yeah. I don't want to say that they prove that these conspiracies then are false, but it does make it less likely that they're accurate. That's true. I would agree with everything you've said. I, I would though, hope so. I though also think that the ones that have shocked me the most are the ones where I'm using precisely these principles right. to go into it to essentially begin the debunking process yep. and come up against, uh-oh, uh -oh, wait a minute. But all this evidence there that was, says it happened. Exactly. And... That is, and of course he does say in the letter, look, this is not meant to replace research. Yep. So I want to come and ask you now about... My own red flags. Your own red flags, and I, I want to supply some of my own. But I think one of the things I want to ask about is also, what's the rush? You know, so oh, the listener right. does suggest, you know, it's it's hard for especially non-experts, confronted with all this information to make, to take an opinion about all of these different claims. I think here's the thing, and I'm going to get a bit Marshall McLuhan-esque here. Uh-oh. Talking well, on Shout out to a Canadian. That's right. Talking on the phone is terrible, and I hate it. Yes, yeah, so do I. Do you know why you hate it? Well, I know why you hate it. I'm not sure why I hate it. Shouldn't you know why you hate it? Well, you tell me why I hate I'll it. I'll tell you why you hate okay. it. Okay. <laughs> The method through which you communicate, this is Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message, basically this idea that the method through which you are communicating ultimately forms the, the message itself. Okay. We're going to pretend we're talking on the phone right now. All right. Okay. Hello. Hey, Lee, it's Nathan. Hey, Nathan. Listen, there's something I want to ask you. All right. What's up? What? But what would happen if there was that pause in the phone? It would be horrendous. Yeah. Why would it be so horrendous? Be because it's lack of meaning. Yeah. What would you do if there was a gap of like five seconds on a phone call? What do you do? 
I, I mean, I would assume that we're having some kind of connectivity issue because exactly. it's cell phone days. And so you would probably say, wait, are you there? Did you hang up? What's yeah. happening? But sometimes I require more than five seconds to think through a thought. Right. If you and I are sitting across from each other as, as we are, and I say, Lee, let me ask you something. And then I, and then I scratch my chin for five seconds. Yeah, I don't get irritated. You're going to give me the five seconds I'll in real life. I'll give you five seconds. I'll give you ten. Oh, what a sweet, he's a sweet man. But on the phone, no, because the phone demands an instant response. Yeah. This is why radio stresses me out. Yeah. Because it's like, give me the answer. I'm like, well, I'm thinking about it, but I know it's dead air. You yeah, don't yeah. want dead air. Yeah, you can't think about it. And so you, you could get in worse trouble on the radio than you could get on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Same thing with lecturing. You can stop for a second and think, and people will give you the time. Right. It doesn't happen on the phone because of the nature of the technology itself. Yeah. So now we live in an age of constant, instant communication. And I think it demands of us that we respond to things immediately. Uh, so that's how you're connecting this back to this demand for knowing the truth about any kind of social event. Do you believe yeah. in Bigfoot? Do you believe in aliens? What's your take on MKUltra? It's got to be all What's... hot takes because if you wait for a week to think through your take, we've already moved on to something else that you need a take on at that point. Well, That was last week's take and we don't care anymore. I think then if that's what's going on... It's part I, of what's going on. I think for those things, I think one of one of the things that is part of our method is not to rush to an opinion. Now, this doesn't always work. And I think the example of vaccines that DW brought up in the email is an important one. There are decisions that you have to make relatively soon. I mean, not necessarily from one moment to the next, but whether you're going to get the vaccine or not is a decision that's going to directly impact your health one way or the other. It's going to have an impact on your health and maybe an impact on the health of those people you love. So in this case, I don't think you want to rely on a cheat sheet. I think mm -hmm. in this case, you want to do your due diligence and take your time to think through, gather the best resources, the best information, the best experts you can, expert opinions you can. And in that case, I get why you would want to have an opinion. I'm not sure, though, whether we need to have an opinion about everything if we are not willing to put in the effort to research it. Yeah, but uh, again, because we have this ability to communicate instantly and, and widely, it, it, it almost seems like it's being demanded of everyone to have an opinion. I think it's also exhausting. And I, I think that we would all do ourselves a favor if we all adopted the attitude that maybe I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Which is also why... I mean, this is what happens if somebody, I'm sure, asks you your opinion on some kind of scandal that happened with famous people, you yeah, would say... I don't know. Yeah. And not only that, when we started this project of the Uncover-Up six years ago, I was pretty insistent that we don't follow the news because mm -hmm. I didn't want to have the hot takes. I wanted to be released from that. It is something that stresses me out again about radio and TV appearances because they're interested in the thing that happened yesterday or a week ago. And my position is we're not in a really yet. good position to know about this yet. Lee we, loves an ice cold take. Well, we talked about the election hack of 2016, I think four or five years after it happened. Yeah. And that was great because then we had the data. We had so much data then. Now, it turned out already in 2016, a bunch of that data was available. But for me, I find it overwhelming 
to be in the middle of that media storm and try and pick out what's real and what isn't at that time. And, and that's everybody. It isn't just us. It, I think everybody is kind of in that situation. I was called by a producer who was working with one of the radio people that we work with. And he was saying, Okay, if you're a producer out there, could you just once call me, like just one time, call Lee and ask me to come. It's because you go to sleep at 8.30 at night. <laughs> so the producer said, listen, we love the work you've been doing with, with, with the talent, but we want your takes to be hotter. We want you to be more controversial. We want you to be like, yeah. kind of like crazier almost. Yeah. And I said, but that's not what we want to do. No. We don't want to add to the noise. I don't want to come on and make a bunch of wild swings and make a bunch of wild speculation that I, that I can't back up. I'm much happier going on and saying, we don't know this yet. Here are some things that we still need to look into. Yeah. Unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily make great radio. Whereas no. somebody coming on and making great big speculative swings, that's good for ratings. Because then the, the calls come in and the, the heat gets turned up. Exactly. It's good for ratings. And that's about all it's good for. It's good for inflaming emotions, yeah. which is another thing that I think is part of this method is to try and keep that at bay as much as possible. Which well, is course, hard, hard to do in the age of social media. Sure. But, we, and I'm going to, you know, we are embodied emotional creatures and we do have emotions, but you do. Here's a, here's a shout out to Nathan's uh, brilliant teaching methodology I hate to say that, does pain me, but, you know, credit where credit's due. When we talk about this stuff in class, we've designed it, and this comes from Nathan, the first conspiracies that we talk about happened like 100 years ago, because nobody cares. And when you don't, when you're not deeply invested in a conspiracy, it's much easier to be able to come up with the right answer. So it would be an absolute disaster to walk into a course on conspiracies and on day one ask well what do you think about the covid vaccine mm -hmm. because the room would just divide up each side would consider the other people idiots or worse and no work could get done because now we also have an emotional attachment to our intellectual positions and to our team and to our team and so i think that's one of the issues that wasn't directly brought up in the letter but is nonetheless there this question about why do you need to have an opinion about everything? It's okay not to know. It's okay to keep an open mind, not know. And then those things that matter to you, and who knows what they are, it shows vaccines as one example, you investigate that seriously. Now, having said that, I think these red flags are still useful. I think they're still useful. And I and think, I think we, we could, got some too. Exactly. I think we could add some. So give me one of yours. Okay. I'm going to talk about field work for a second. All right. So I was at kind of a, a QAnon meeting and I was at this specific QAnon meeting because we're writing a book right now. I was writing a chapter on the relationship between conspiratorial belief in false conspiracies and an idea known as Manichaeism. Mm -hmm. So what is Manichaeism very briefly? It's a dualistic worldview in which you have an all good on one side and an all bad on the other, and there's some kind of epic struggle between them. Generally, you're expected to choose sides, preferably yeah. the side of the good. I exactly. It's not a world where there are shades of gray or there, there are sort of like relativism. Complexities. Complexities. There is good. There is the side of the angels and the side of the devils. Right. And that's all there is in the world. Of course, that is kind of a reassuring way to look at the world but I don't think it's a very accurate way to look at the world. How do you define evil? There's a hell of a question to get asked. Yeah, God. 
give me a little lead up here. No way. Just how do I right define, into it? How do I define evil? What is evil to you? If we were on the phone, I would say, are you there? Hello? Hello? <laughs> I mean, I'm glad you're not a radio host. I'll tell you that much. I think, okay, I think evil is to, to a large extent defined by the consequences instead of the motivations. The motivations right. I think the motivation does have something to do with it, but it's and if I were to make a recipe for what makes evil, motivation is like salt. It, it's, it's always nice to have a little bit, but it's not often the essential thing. Right. There's, so so the evil consequences is, are the essential thing. Yeah, like, which is having to do with harm in the world. Yeah. And there has been great evil in the world. I'm, I'm confident using the word evil to describe all sorts of things. Because evil to me, and based on what you said to you, has to do with the horrifying consequences of harm to sentient beings. Yes, although I have to, I struggle with that concept of evil because I find that whenever we're talking, we're talking with listeners as well, or, or interlocutors, people who then also oh. say stuff. But... I find using those terms, you slip into Manichaean worldviews. Right. It's the difference between describing an act as evil because of what the consequences were and saying that there is like an evil force in the world that is motivating these acts. Yeah. So I believe in evil. I believe in there have been acts of horrifying evil. Yes. And I won't go into them because I'm already kind of bummed out lately, but... Surely our listeners can come up with yeah, their own you can, list. You can think of all sorts of things that, are, that we would consider to be evil. But the motivations for those evil acts were not, they were not done for the purposes of serving an evil master. Usually not. Yeah, they're, they're done for power. Well, they're done for financial gain. Horrendously, they're, sometimes they're done for the quote-unquote betterment of humanity. Yeah. That was the motivation of the actor doing it. Yeah. Now, of course, the rest of us look on that and think that's not coherent, to yeah. put it mildly. So we also believe in concepts of evil, but not as a force that's kind of like demanding people do evil acts for evil's sake. Yeah, so I think what Nathan is thinking of here is mini-me and Austin Powers, or the evil guy in Austin Powers. Right. right? Doing evil just to... That's, that's his thing. He yeah. wants a million dollars, and right. he has a cackle. Yeah. And so it's, it is a cartoonish kind of uh, absurd way of looking at the world, a world of complexities and, and grayness and well, things like and that. Well, and it is actually... Funny you should mention cartoonish because it is the universe of cartoons. Yeah. And, and certainly the stuff that we grew up with, with Transformers and G.I. Joe. Smurfs. And, uh, Smurfs, exactly. Yeah. Gargamel was all bad. Yeah. Why? Because Who of knows? evil. This is, this is the distinction I make in class between right. evil, which is a description of the harm that is done in the world, and evil. Yes. Which is this sort of force that demands evil for evil's sake. Yeah. And so when a conspiracy, when I come across one, and I often do, that has evil in it, like, why would somebody do this? Because of evil. They're evil. That's right. Yeah. Whereas when we look at MKUltra was evil. It was evil because of the terrible consequences it had. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't done to be evil. No. In fact, many of the people doing it would be able to rationalize it some way. Who yeah. knows how coherently. Doesn't but make they, it any less they, terrible. They but would rationalize it to say that they were, in fact, doing this for the safety of humanity. In fact, I bet you they would say, maybe not in these words, but they were doing their evil acts to fight... A greater evil. 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 Yeah. Evil. See, it's a useful way of describing it. <laughs> so I went to this QAnon meeting because I wanted to see, 
is this accurate? When I go out into the world, is this actually how people are seeing things? Does it contribute to their false conspiratorial beliefs? Immediately upon getting to the meeting, there is somebody who's complaining that a dog was barking at him on the way to the meeting. Okay. One of the leaders of the meeting says, well, you know what that means? Hmm. If a dog is barking at you, it's because that dog has a demon in it. And that demon has recognized the angel in you. I see. So even a dog barking at you becomes part of this Manichaean epic battle between good and evil. So if you're going to dismiss this as, or suggest it as a red flag, what's the con- what is the opposite concept that you would want to have as the way things generally do work? That the motivations might, you might disagree with the motivations. The motivations might still result in terrible harm and evil being done in the world. But the motivations themselves isn't a person doing evil for like cackling, like Mr. Burns style evil reasons. Right. So do we need something like, uh, we've used this in our, the podcast in many episodes in the past, a kind of structural concept of society in which people participating in institutions, kind of doing what they're told, often then contribute to something, the end of which is really horrific. Is, is evil and But terrible. nobody within it was particularly cartoonishly villainous villainous and a lot of them would have suggested somewhat plausible reasons for why they're doing this and how this was actually contributing to the betterment of the world yeah Uh, one example here that's often used in economics to talk about structures and separate them from individual people's motivations are traffic jams where traffic jams don't happen because people want to create traffic jams. That's that's just not how traffic jams happen. It happens where every person makes a rational decision at the end of a long workday to get home as quickly as possible. And so they all jump in their car roughly around the same time. In Toronto, where we have some of the worst traffic in North America, rush hour starts at around 3.30 in the afternoon and keeps going until about 7 p.m. And in that period, it's just very difficult to get anywhere. And if you're driving it, it almost feels like there is an evil (laughs) force that is trying to prevent you from getting where you want to go. Yeah, it certainly is extremely frustrating and very easy to take it out on your immediate vicinity of cars, pedestrians, that garbage truck that seems not to be going anywhere quite deliberately. And yet what we're encountering here are social formations that arise out of very coherent individual responses that collectively undermine what any of those people wanted. Yeah. And so that for me is a red flag when your theory requires evil. And many of the true conspiracy theories that we've looked at, I would say, have resulted in evil. Sure. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment resulted in evil. That's an evil act that was done. Cointelpro, MKUltra. Those sea spray. Sea spray. We keep going back to those ones. Because what really most went down in 9-11 was evil. Yeah. Like the just flying passenger Cyclone. planes into Project Cyclone was evil. Yeah. Sure. Like all these things are evil, but the other thing they all are. Salem, Salem witch trials. Yeah. But the other thing they all are is also explainable. Not defensible. Right. But explainable. Right. Explainable without resorting to the idea that there is a massive evil, evil force behind everything. Yeah. And so that, that for me is it when the motivation is evil for evil's sake, 
I, I think that that conspiracy theory is, again, less likely to be accurate. Okay. That's a good one. Thank you. I got one too. Hit it. It's about the nature of evidence. And the question is, if it's based on somebody's personal experience, or even worse, if it's a reporting of somebody else's personal experience, I become suspicious if that's all I've got to go on. Anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence is not great. Now, it can be useful if you have other much more rigorous types of evidence. If you have documents from the agencies that are perpetrating this. So, for example, we talked about COINTELPRO. This is the spying program that the FBI did on American citizens. It was illegal. It was evil. It was evil. And there would have been people who were being spied on and who were the victims of FBI disinformation campaigns who would have come forth with anecdotal experiential evidence of being followed or... Having my mail opened. Having the mail opened or I these kinds of... my phone's being tapped. Now, if that's all I had to go on, I would be suspicious. And the reason is that... There are so many other reasons why that could be happening and still experienced by that person as the FBI spying on me. And I, as an analyst, would have a lot of difficulty separating, in which case this is an example of, again, maybe a mental health crisis rooted in paranoia, or if this is actually something that's going on. Yeah, now, contrast... Uh, sorry, I'll give you a quick example. Yeah. We've spoken to people who think they've been kidnapped by aliens. Right. And I think a lot of them are telling the truth. Yes. About the experience they had. About the experience, exactly. But I don't think they were necessarily kidnapped by aliens. What it probably happened to them. Well, a lot of times those experiences can be made sense of with this concept of sleep paralysis. Mm -hmm. Maybe not all the time. But that is a case where when you look at the reports of sleep paralysis, which is to say people find themselves in this in-between sleeping and waking state where you're kind of conscious you're, and you want to get up, but your body is, feels like it's paralyzed. There sometimes feels like there's another presence in the room. Sometimes it's a menacing presence. Sometimes you feel like you're being pushed into the bed or... You know, okay. It's a very real and very present experience. And like, frightening. And, and terrifying. And if you then look at the alien abduction stories, many of them are just like that. I was sleeping in bed. I woke up. I couldn't move. I could feel a presence. Some people even see a presence. Okay, so going back to the COINTELPRO example, when it's just based on first-person experience or, hey, my friend is having her letters opened or stuff like that, I'm not going to go there yet. But then we have... When the documents are revealed, and we have, I think it's the church committee hearings that unravel that and other things. Again, we're going back into episodes, which I don't currently have all the notes in front of me for. Check out the COINTELPRO episode if you're more interested. But there comes a point where we have proof positive, where the FBI basically throws up their hand and says, yeah, we did this. Thanks to good investigative journalism. Yes. And, and some luck. And a hilariously named... A group, the Citizens for the Investigation of the FBI, who do their own criminal sleuthing and uncover a bunch of stuff. But the point being, there's a difference in the nature of the evidence. So when we have documents from the guilty party that shows how they've done it, and that's, I think, something that you and I are constantly looking for. When we 
look for those conspiracies that we believe really happened, it has to be more than somebody said so. We have to have, I mean, generally the thing that we'd want are the people implicated basically admitting that they've done it or having the documents to prove that they've done it. That goes a long way in making me more confident. So one of the things that I find very suspicious or a red flag is when all I have is the first person experience or a reported account. This is often the case with the with alien sightings, with Bigfoot sightings, with experience of the supernatural. These are one or a few people who have an experience. And the problem here, and we've talked about this in many different episodes, are that there are a lot of psychological factors that can lead to false positives. This is not people being stupid. This is not people being fooled or, 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 or being liars. These are problems that have been demonstrated in rigorous psychological experiments, like, for example, the issue of memory and how memory often confabulates what happened. I mean, we looked at Betty and Barney Hill. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we didn't think they were lying. We also didn't think they were kidnapped by aliens. We thought that the combination of of suggestion and hypnosis, it it was putting false memories into them. Now, and of course, as we've talked about before, that doesn't mean that a conspiracy theory based on anecdotal evidence is necessarily untrue. No, like COINTELPRO was in fact true. Yeah. Right? So that's the problem, again, when you But it means the... that you need more evidence than exactly. that. Exactly. So before, they, before the FBI essentially admits it, I am skeptical because all I have is the anecdotal stuff. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, so I, I did that on purpose using an, an, an example of a conspiracy which, we, which I believe... I can prove, I believe I can prove that it actually happened. Yeah. And yet I would have different relationships to the evidence. So it's really the nature of the evidence. When it is first person experiential evidence, it's not good evidence. So there's two red flags that we have. Yeah. Both of them are kind of like big picture stuff. Yeah. Having to do with the nature of evidence and the nature of existence and reality. <laughs> so I got, I got some smaller ones. Let's all go right, back and right. forth, some rapid fire, some okay, smaller okay, ones. Okay, okay, okay. I get a red flag when a conspiracy involves the interpretation of secret signs hidden in pop culture. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, that's that's true. So numerology. Yeah. When when the planes that struck the twin towers and you put that into a word processor and you change the font and this and that and then outspits some kind of pictogram. That you can then of, interpret and it means this. Exactly. And yeah. That kind of stuff. And again, years ago, I was I was given this long speech from a, a kind of an anti-Illuminati sort of task force leader, I guess, who had become convinced that the Illuminati were going to blow up London in 2012 during the Olympics. Right. And all of his evidence were song lyrics and Simpsons episodes and right. commercials. Right, right. And, and to me, that's just... That and memes are amongst my least favorite forms of evidence. Right, exactly. So that's a quick one. Give us a quick one. A quick one would be if it contradicts everything that we know about physics so far. Ah, sure. Right? So this is the time travel stuff. Mm-hmm. Again, there is a lot that we don't know about the universe. And I am not suggesting that our level of science is at all the final explanation of how things go. But this is one of these Occam's razor things where what do you 
expect me to believe in order to believe this conspiracy. How many more things do I have to believe in in order to believe this one thing? Exactly. And if what I need to do is throw out all the conventional understanding about how physics works today in order to then buy into this one rather outlandish claim for which there generally is very little evidence, except for stuff like the person on the other end of Twitter says that they came from the future. Ah, uh, the you know? TikTok time travel episode. That was then, a good episode. Or, or the, the Mandela effect one, you know, this notion that we are constantly shifting between universes and there are traces that remain in us that remember look i'm sorry it's just it's too big of a claim in terms of what we understand about how physics works and usually the people who are making these claims have no understanding of how physics works yes so, i was talking to somebody recently who claims they understood cern extremely well right which but, i don't no and I, I i have no idea how cern works we've spoken to dr lesher about it yes. she worked at cern yeah and I she still, knows how it works. She knows how a lot of it works. We know how none of it works. But the person I was speaking to knows even less than we do. And man, that's was, not a lot. <laughs> not a lot. And he was making the argument that it was it was bringing demons into the world, which yeah, I think you know? is part of the old video game Doom. Okay. So I, I think that's where that might have come from. All right. So there's some very quick examples. The most important thing to remember about all of this is the biggest mistake like a red flag that, that we should see in ourselves. Mm, that's and the, a good one. And the red flag that we see in ourselves is, I think, when we become too certain of anything. Yeah. Am I allowed to mention Immanuel Kant on this episode, who is a German philosopher? Well, I'm going to do it anyway. I mentioned Damn airplanes, it, so I'm going to give you Kant. All right. Yeah. I think that's a fair exchange. Wait, you mentioned McLuhan. I've, this is way better than, than McLuhan. Anyway. Immanuel Kant is a German, was a German philosopher, and he put it, I think, in, in this really helpful way. He said there is Unusually two, for him. <laughs> he said there are two barriers to gaining knowledge. One is skepticism, and the other one is dogmatism. So dogmatism is what Nathan just said. It's the notion that I already know. I already have the answer. This was the trouble I had with Bigfoot. I was like, I already know this is a stupid idea. I'm just going to go ahead and prove it. And I discovered I was the stupid one. I was wrong and there was a lot more to it. So had I not done, you know, if I hadn't done this podcast, I would never have investigated that aspect of my own prejudice. And so I would still be carrying that around with me and thinking I knew something that I didn't know. So dogmatism, where you think you already have the answer, is a real barrier to getting better information, better knowledge. The other one is skepticism in the sense that, well, there is nothing to know. Everything is all illusion or it's all relative or there is no truth out there. Or you get to make up your own truth. Any version of that also prevents any further investigation of the world. What's the point if, you, if there's nothing to know or if anybody gets to choose what they want? Or if every belief is equally as good as every other belief. Right. Yeah. So the, the trick then in coming to an understanding of the world is navigating between those two extremes. Yeah. And it is a bit of a balancing act. It is like walking a tightrope where it's very easy to fall into one or the other. And of course, we do it all the time without knowing it. I mean, nobody walks around with ideas that they know are wrong. All of our ideas we think are right. But at the same time, 
we're not perfect, so we must be wrong about some things. Yeah, in fact, probably most things. Right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I will say that actually Kant does a pretty good job of explaining that. Oh, thank you. His epistemology, what are you saying thank you for? You're, I, are you I taking the, credit for Kant? I am taking credit for Kant right here. I mean, his epistemology is actually brilliant. His ethics, trash. Yeah, well, I think when it really comes down to it, you got to do the hard work of investigating. I think that it's okay not to, not to have an opinion, not to necessarily have to have a hot take when somebody asks you something. And that all of the stuff that we've brought up and that DW brought up works well enough at first blush but if you want to really think about it and get into it, you got to do that legwork. I think what Lee is saying is one must check oneself <laughs> before one wrecks oneself. Ooh.